Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, General Conference McNuggets. Well, it has been six months now since April General Conference of 2019. We are in the midst of the preparation for and delivery of the October General Conference. Time certainly flies when you're having fun. And I want you to know that Radio Free Mormon is definitely having fun doing this podcast and reporting on all things Mormon. But the fact is that there are so many things to comment on in Mormonism today that I am not able to get to everything that I want to get to when I want to get to it. For example, I still have some items from the April General Conference that I want to talk about before it fades forever in the past. In my defense, I have done a couple of episodes dealing with talks from the April General Conference. One of those was titled, Why Are Mormons So Fake? And in that podcast, my intent was to do the podcast I want to do tonight. But I started with the first talk in the Saturday morning session of General Conference, which was given by the new apostle on the block, Elder Ulysses Suarez. My goal there was simply to make a few comments about his talk and then move on to a few other comments that I had on talks given by subsequent speakers, not going into depth, but lightly touching upon points of interest that I found in different things that were said. But I found myself rapidly getting so involved in what Elder Suarez said and digging deeper and deeper that I ended up doing an entire podcast just on his talk alone. And once again, that podcast was titled, Why Are Mormons So Fake? My most recent podcast, Unanswered Prayers, dealt with two talks from the April General Conference, one from the morning session on Saturday and one from the afternoon session on Sunday. And once again, I managed to get myself way in deep on those talks, not only dealing with the words themselves, but also seeking to discover the meaning behind the words. And I threw in a couple of missionary stories of my own for good measure. The reason this podcast is titled General Conference McNuggets is because I fully intend to do this time what I meant to do before which is just talk about the little McNuggets in General Conference without getting into depth. And just as a juicy McNugget is something that is tasty of its own right but does not constitute an entire meal, I want to touch lightly on the McNuggets from General Conference of 2018. Let's get started, shall we? The first McNugget once again comes from Elder Suarez's talk, the first talk in General Conference, where he says, I testify to you that we will have the privilege of hearing the voice of our Savior Jesus Christ through the teachings of those who pray, sing, and speak to the needs of our day in this conference. Okay, the first thing I want to mention is that Elder Suarez says that in that general conference, we will have the privilege of hearing the voice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you just left it at that, you might think that Jesus was going to pay a personal visit to General Conference at some time during the 10 hours of sessions that the people would be sitting through, and that would indeed be something worth listening to, something people would look forward to. Except that Elder Suarez immediately qualifies what he means by hearing the voice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as meaning through the teachings of those who pray, sing, and speak to the needs of our day in this conference. So really, Jesus isn't going to show up. We're just going to be hearing the prophets, the elders, the choir sing and teach about Jesus Christ. But notice this, in Elder Suarez's view, hearing him talk, hearing other leaders talk, hearing the choir sing is the same thing as hearing the voice of our Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Now, though he doesn't quote from Doctrine and Covenants section 18, this is likely a reference to what is taught there in that revelation because there, the similar equation is made that hearing the voice of the servants of the Lord is the same as hearing the voice of Jesus. Starting in verse 33 of section 18, it says, And I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and your God, have spoken it. These words, i.e. the words in the Revelation, these words are not of men nor of man, but of me. Wherefore, you shall testify they are of me and not of man. That part isn't surprising. It gets a little bit unusual as we move into verse 35. For it is my voice which speaketh them unto you, for they are given by my spirit unto you, and by my power you can read them one to another. Well, that's an interesting idea. By my power you can read them one to another. One would think that one could read the Doctrine and Covenants to somebody else without necessarily needing the power of Jesus Christ, but that's what the Revelation says. And save it were by my power, you could not have them. And then verse 36, this is the clincher. Wherefore, you can testify that you have heard my voice and know my words. So here, the revelation is giving license to anybody who actually hears the words of the revelations contained in the Doctrine and Covenants, that simply by means of hearing those words, or perhaps by reading them, that you are then eligible and able to testify that you have heard my voice, i.e. the voice of Jesus Christ. And I think that this may be behind what Elder Suarez means when he says, I testify to you that we will have the privilege of hearing the voice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, through the teachings of those who pray, sing, and speak to the needs of our day in this conference. Now, it's an interesting turn of phrase, and it's an unusual definition of hearing the voice of the Savior just by listening to the leaders of the church speak. But here's something I want to note about this. If leaders of the church are going to say that simply listening to other leaders of the church talk is the same thing as hearing the voice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, then maybe we need to be a little bit cautious about understanding what it is they say in separate contexts and on separate occasions when different leaders of the church say that I testify to you that I have heard the voice of Jesus Christ. Now that sounds pretty impressive standing on its own. It sounds like something really remarkable happened. But given this background, this context, this understanding, it is quite likely that what they mean by that is nothing more than what Elder Suarez testifies to in his opening lines of April 2019 General Conference. That when a leader says they have heard the voice of the Savior, Jesus Christ, they don't necessarily mean they've heard the voice of the Savior, Jesus Christ. All they mean is they've heard the voice of leaders of the church. And for them, it's one and the same. So thank you, Elder Suarez, for giving that little insight into the real meaning that may lie behind the otherwise powerful testimonies of your fellow apostles. The next McNugget comes from the same talk by Elder Suarez. Here he quotes President Russell M. Nelson in the following way. Play the tape. God's prophets have consistently instructed that we need to raise our families in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and in light and truth. President Nelson <clears throat> recently said, quote, In this day of ramping immorality and addictive pornography, parents have a sacred responsibility to teach their children the importance of God and Jesus Christ in their lives. Close quote. Now, the first thing I want to say is that every single apostle and pretty much every other speaker in General Conference feels it incumbent upon them to, somewhere in their remarks, include a quote from President Russell M. Nelson. And this seems to be what Elder Suarez is doing here. Because when you hear him quote President Nelson, you might think that he's actually quoting the exact words that President Nelson spoke. But that is not the case. If you check the footnote in this talk, it's footnote 12. This quote of Russell M. Nelson comes from a 2008 April General Conference address that he gave there. 
And if you listen to this quote, you'll find that it's not exactly the same as Elder Suarez quotes it in 2019. Here's what Russell M. Nelson said in 2008. In this day of rampant immorality and addictive pornography, parents have a sacred responsibility to teach their children the importance of God in their lives. Did you notice a difference? In what Russell M. Nelson really said, he does not include the three words, and Jesus Christ. Once again, he says, parents have a sacred responsibility to teach their children the importance of God in their lives. That's what he really said. But when Elder Suarez quotes it, he adds the words, and Jesus Christ after God. And this is how he quotes it. Parents have a sacred responsibility to teach their children the importance of God and Jesus Christ in their lives. Now, if you listen to Elder Suarez say that in general conference, you will have no hint whatsoever that he is adding the words and Jesus Christ to the quote from President Nelson. Only if you actually look at the printed version can you see that the words and Jesus Christ, those added words and Jesus Christ, are contained in the printed version in brackets. And the brackets signify that those words were not there in the original. Now, the thing I find interesting about this is that Elder Suarez is an apostle of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He is doing his obligatory quote from the president of the church, the prophet of the Lord, President Russell M. Nelson, and yet he has to add some words to what President Nelson said in order to make it fit what Elder Suarez is talking about. Because you see, Elder Suarez is talking about Jesus Christ. And in fact, this quote from President Nelson sets the stage for him going on and talking about the importance of teaching our children the importance of Jesus Christ. Well, if I'm going to put myself in Elder Suarez's mind for a minute, he is preparing for general conference. He wants to talk about Jesus Christ. He knows he's got a shoehorn in, a quote from President Nelson somewhere. He can't find a good quote that'll suit his purposes. He knows he has to quote him anyway, so he'll just add the words and Jesus Christ into what President Nelson originally said in order to make it fit the bill. Now, I'm not trying to make too big a thing out of this. I'm sure that President Nelson does actually believe in Jesus Christ. I'm sure President Nelson believes it's important to teach our children about Jesus Christ as well as God. And I do not imagine that President Nelson had a problem with Elder Suarez adding these additional words to the quote that President Nelson originally gave back in 2008. I just think it's interesting and actually somewhat humorous that an apostle of the Lord, because of his perceived need to include a quote from President Nelson and not finding one that says what he wants it to say, has to actually improve on the original quote from the president of the church in order to make it something he can use in his own general conference address. But I'll stop picking on Elder Suarez now. Let's go to the next general conference talk in which I find a McNugget. This is a talk called Careful Versus Casual. It is given by Becky Craven, the second counselor in the Young Women General Presidency. And here she gives a wonderful analogy and metaphor in the form of a story of a friend of hers who is a train engineer. And in this story, the train is heading down the tracks and encounters a car stalled at the train crossing. Play the tape. We have a dear friend who was a train engineer. One day while he was driving a train on his route, he spotted a car stopped on the track ahead of him. He quickly realized that the car was stuck and unable to cross the track. He immediately put the train in emergency mode, which engaged the brakes on each boxcar that extended three quarters of a mile behind the engine, carrying a load of 6,500 tons. There was no physical chance that the train would be able to stop before it hit the car, which it did. Fortunately for the people in the car, they heard the warning of the train whistle and escaped from the car before the impact. 
As the engineer spoke with the investigating police officer, an angry woman approached them. She shouted that she had seen the whole incident and then testified that the engineer did not even try to swerve out of the way to miss the car. Okay, now of course, that's a funny thing to say. How can a train swerve out of its way to miss a car that's on the tracks? Well, it can't. It's going way too fast, it's got way too much momentum, it can't stop in time, and it obviously cannot leave the tracks to swerve around the car. I mean, it's a train, it runs on tracks, it's supposed to stay on the tracks. That's where trains are supposed to run, on the tracks. But now, Sister Craven makes the inevitable comparison between the train and us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and even potentially the church itself in her following paragraph, play the tape. Obviously, if the engineer had been able to swerve and leave the tracks to avoid an accident, he and his entire train would have been lost in a derailment, and the train's forward progress would have come to an abrupt stop. Fortunately for him, the rails of the tracks on which his train ran kept the wheels of the train snugly moving towards its destination, regardless of the obstacle in his way. Fortunately for us, we too are on a track, a covenant path we committed to when we were baptized as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although we may encounter occasional obstacles along the way, This path will keep us moving towards our prized eternal destination if we stay firmly on it. Now, here's where I thought this analogy got interesting because she kind of makes it explicit here that the train is like the church. There may be a car stopped on the track in front of it, but this train, this church, is not going to stop. It can't stop. It can't leave the rails. It's got to stay on the rails. It's going to an important destination. And so any car on the tracks in front of it, whether it has people in it or whether the people can get out, that train is going to move through. This reminded me of Elder Bruce R. McConkie's talk from October 1984 General Conference called The Caravan Moves On. And there he likened the church not to a train, but to a caravan that's moving on to a destination. And there he talks about members of the church who fall by the wayside. And he says, what does it matter if a few barking dogs snap at the heels of the weary travelers? Or listen to this, or that predators claim those few who fall by the way. The caravan moves on. The church is like a great caravan, organized, prepared, following an appointed course, with its captains of tens and captains of hundreds all in place. What does it matter if a few barking dogs snap at the, wheels of the, at the heels of the weary travelers or that predators claim those few who fall by the way? The caravan moves on. So in Elder McConkie's talk, which in its own way was a little bit extreme, it seemed to a number of people, he talks about those members of the church who fall by the way from the caravan and what does it matter if predators claim those few who fall by the way? Well, Sister Craven out McConkie's McConkie on this one because she's not talking about a few who fall by the way from the caravan. She talks about what happens if these people who fall away get in front of the caravan. They're not just by the side of it. The caravan isn't just moving on and leaving them behind. Instead, they are actually in front of the caravan. What does this caravan that is the church do in those situations? Well, now the caravan is not just a caravan. It is a train. It's moving fast, it's rolling strong, and it cannot leave the tracks to go around whoever might happen to be in front of them. So therefore, it's just going to plow 
straight through. I love this metaphor by Sister Craven and the fact that it is given by a woman and yet somehow manages to be even more metaphorically violent than the talk given by Elder McConkie in 1984 tells me that the young women's general presidency is in good hands. If there's somebody out there in front of the train, in front of the church, the correct course is to simply run over that person who is in your path. It isn't your fault. It is the covenant path that you are on. You can't veer from that covenant path any more than a train can veer off its tracks. And this talk by Sister Craven also put me in mind of a couple of parables from the New Testament. One was the parable of the Good Samaritan, who actually did stop his forward progress. He left the tracks that he was on, and he did so in order to help somebody by the side of the road. It also made me think of the parable of the lost sheep, where the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to go look after the one that has gone astray. It appears that Jesus had a penchant for parables that talked about people stopping their forward momentum, leaving the track they were on in order to help people who needed help and those who had gone astray. But all that is old school now. Damn the gospel of Jesus Christ, full speed ahead. The next McNugget came from none other than the Silver Fox himself. Yes, Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf, not to be confused with President Dieter F. Uchtdorf. This is given by Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf, who is now the Executive Director of the Missionary Program of the Church. And as such, he gives what is not unexpected a talk on missionary work. At the beginning of his talk, he makes a couple of somewhat contradictory statements. Now, to lay the groundwork for this, you may remember that I did a three-part episode called Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics. And in that episode, I talked about how it was that when I joined the church back in the 70s and continuing into the 80s and 90s, the church was growing at a phenomenal pace. And that growth was looked at and declared to be a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 of the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that would roll forth until it had filled the entire earth. And yet, in the past 10 years, the church growth has slowed. In fact, it has stagnated. It may actually even be approaching flatlining. And therefore, Daniel chapter 2 has ceased to have utility for the church as an evidence of its fulfillment of Bible prophecy by its incredible growth. And so now the trend has been not to talk about Daniel chapter 2 and how the church's growth is a sign that it's true, but to go to the Book of Mormon and look at a prophecy there and talk about how the smallness of the church is actually a sign of its truthfulness. Elder Uchtdorf seems to want to have it both ways. First, he says something that sounds like the church is growing, which is great. That's a harking back to the old times, Daniel chapter 2. But then he also talks about how it's so small, which is the trend that the church is going to, to talk about the fact the church is not growing. The first thing he says is this. In the last 200 years, the members of the restored Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, have also experienced persecution in many forms. But in spite of that persecution, and sometimes because of it, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has continued to grow and is now found all across the globe. So that's the first quote. It sounds like old times, like the church's growth is a sign of its truth. And yet we know, and Elder Uchtdorf knows, that the church is not growing. It's actually flatlining. So shortly later in this talk, he gives the other side of the coin in order to account for this. There are roughly seven and a half billion people in the world, compared to some 16 million members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a very small flock indeed. So now he talks about the fact that actually the church is very, very small. And there's a footnote here in the printed version, and that's footnote one. If you go to footnote one, you will find that it goes to 
the new prophecy in the Book of Mormon that now leaders of the church are starting to go to instead of Daniel chapter 2 from the Old Testament. That footnote goes to 1 Nephi chapter 14 verse 12. This is going to become a very popular and very much used scripture in future general conferences. And the first part of that verse says, And it came to pass that I beheld the church of the Lamb of God, and its numbers were few. Because of the wickedness and abomination of the whore who set upon many waters. Okay, well, that's why they're few. But the main point of this passage that's being used by Elder Uchtdorf is the numbers of the church were few. And the only reason I spend this much time with this particular quote from Elder Uchtdorf is because I predicted as part of that three-part series of podcasts I did that this trend would continue and that we would start seeing repeated references in general conference to the smallness of the membership of the church going forward as opposed to the prior quotes that we had about how the church would continue to grow and grow and grow until it filled the entire earth. The times, they are changing. The next McNugget is a story that's told by W. Christopher Waddell, the second counselor in the presiding bishopric in his talk, just as he did. And here he gives a story about his brother Mike. Now you may remember that some time ago I did another podcast that was called General Conference Death March. And in that podcast, I looked at a prior general conference and I assembled together all the stories in there about people who either receive priesthood blessings or obviously would have received priesthood blessings and yet die anyway. There were no stories of miraculous healings through priesthood blessings. This story falls under that same category and it involves, unfortunately, his brother named Mike who gets pancreatic cancer and ends up dying from it in spite of the fact that he gets a priesthood blessing. And that fact is specifically mentioned in this talk that he gets a priesthood blessing from his home teacher. Play the tape. Approximately 18 months ago, in the fall of 2017, my 64-year-old brother Mike informed me that he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He also told me that he had received a priesthood blessing from his home teacher and that he had met with his bishop. Now, we would hope, we would expect that if the priesthood power is real and it really has the power to heal people through administrations such as Mike received from his home teacher, that the rest of the story would be and Mike was healed miraculously from his pancreatic cancer, but that's not the case. And unfortunately, this is more and more what we have been led to expect in general conference. We will have stories about people who get sick, who get priesthood blessings, and who die anyway. And this is going to be another one of these stories. Now this story is made just a little bit more interesting because the speaker's brother, Mike, had been inactive in the church for about 50 years. And through getting cancer and through approaching the end of his life, he ends up becoming reactivated in the church. He ends up becoming rebaptized. apparently. He gets his patriarchal blessing and he receives the Melchizedek priesthood shortly before he passes away. In early December of last year, following months of procedures, Mike decided to stop the cancer treatments which were causing severe side effects and just to let nature take its course. Now, I want to make sure that you understand I am not making fun of the situation. I always have to repeat this. I feel it's important to repeat this. When we're talking about stories where people die, that's not fun. It's not funny. All I am commenting on is the fact 
that Mike, along with a host, in fact, an army of other people in the LDS Church, according to the talks we hear in General Conference, they get sick, they receive priesthood blessings, and they die anyway. And Mike's name is going to be added to that list, which unfortunately grows longer and longer with every General Conference. Elder Waddell says that Mike decided to stop the cancer treatments, which were causing severe side effects, and to just let nature take its course. Well, that is a decision that many people make. There are horrible side effects from the treatments, and some people get tired of that. That the treatment is worse than simply dying, so he decides to discontinue it and to just let nature take its course. Well, the reason he has to just let nature take its course is because not only have the treatments not worked, but also the priesthood blessings, and they didn't work either. But then note that Elder Waddell says, we were informed by his doctor that Mike had approximately three months to live. And this was in early December of last year, so that would have been in early December of 2018. So it's early December, the doctors say Mike has about three months to live, and let's see what happens next. We were informed by his doctor that Mike had approximately three months to live. By mid-December, with his patriarchal blessing in hand, Mike actually appeared to be gaining strength, and his prognosis of at least another three months seemed likely. We even made plans for him to join us for Christmas, for New Year's and beyond. On December 16th, I received an unexpected call from Bishop Sharp, who informed me that he and the stake president had interviewed Mike had found him worthy to receive the Melchizedek priesthood and asked when I would be available to participate. The ordinance was scheduled for that Friday, December 21st. When the day arrived, my wife Carol and I arrived at the care facility and were immediately met in the hallway near his room and informed that Mike had no pulse. We entered the room to find the patriarch, his bishop, and his stake president already waiting, and then Mike opened his eyes. He recognized me and acknowledged that he could hear me and was ready to receive the priesthood. Fifty years after Mike had been ordained a priest in the Aaronic Priesthood, I had the privilege, assisted by his local leaders, to confer the Melchizedek Priesthood and ordain my brother to the office of elder. Five hours later, Mike passed away, crossing the veil to meet our parents as a holder of the Melchizedek Priesthood. All right, so this is a touching story. It's not something to be made light of. Mike does pass away. But notice the timing of this. This is what I find interesting. By the beginning of December, the doctors are saying that Mike has about three months to live, and that would be through December into January and through the end of February of the following year. And yet, Mike doesn't even make it to Christmas before he passes away. Fortunately, he passed away only shortly, five hours after receiving the Melchizedek Priesthood. But in the context of Mike receiving a priesthood blessing from his home teacher, and come on, let's face it, he got a lot more priesthood blessings than just that one. He got lots of priesthood blessings from different members of the church, including from his brother, who is a general authority in the church. None of them worked. But not only do they not work, Mike actually ends up dying way before what even the doctors predicted. They predict three months. Mike passes away less than a month after the doctors have made that prediction. So here's the moral for the story. If you get sick, if you are in a hospital, if you have been diagnosed with a terminal illness, the last thing you want to do is get a priesthood blessing. Not only are they completely ineffectual according to the stories we hear in General Conference, but you can end up dying way before the doctors tell you you're going to die. So please avoid priesthood blessings at all cost. It's bad for your health. The next McNugget from General Conference comes from President Henry B. Eyring in his talk titled, A Home Where the Spirit of the Lord 
dwells. Now, President Eyring has an interesting thing that he does. Yeah, I'm not talking just about the crying that he does in every talk, but I'm talking about another thing that I've noticed more and more that he does on occasion. And that is that he tells the audience what they're feeling in their hearts and what emotions they are experiencing. It's like he's a Svinjali or something. This is different than the other kind of things we hear very frequently from church leaders that if you read the Book of Mormon, then you will feel the Spirit. You will have the Holy Ghost witness to you that it is true. It is different than simply saying at the end of General Conference what we always hear at the end of General Conference, which is that we have been spiritually fed. That's a form of it. But President Eyring takes it a step further and actually tells you what it is that you are feeling in your heart. In this particular talk, he also says what the people were feeling in their hearts who were present in April of 1830 on the day the church was organized. Play the tape. Although I don't know what the pro prophet Joseph said or how he looked when he stood before that little group, but I know what those people with faith in Jesus Christ felt. They felt the Holy Ghost, and they felt that they were in a holy place. They surely felt that they were united as one. So President Eyring can not only tell you what you're feeling right now, he can tell us what people were feeling almost 200 years ago, people he never met in a place that he's never been, in a meeting that he didn't attend. He can even tell us what those people were feeling. Now he admits he doesn't know what the prophet Joseph Smith said or how he looked when he stood before that little group, but he does know what that little group felt, and they felt the Holy Ghost they felt that they were in a holy place. Now, this is a remarkable power that President Eyring has. And as I mentioned, he doesn't only say it about other people in another place, he more commonly says it about us in the here and now. And he does that later on in his talk. Play the tape. Your faith in the Savior has grown as you followed President Russell M. Nelson's suggestion to reread the Book of Mormon. You mark passages and words that referred to the Savior. Your faith in Jesus Christ grew. So now he's telling us that if we did what President Nelson said, the prior general conference, which is read the Book of Mormon, that we read the Book of Mormon. And if we did that, he knows that our faith in the Savior has grown as we followed President Russell M. Nelson's suggestion to reread the Book of Mormon. That's just amazing, this power he has. And he says it again, your faith in Jesus Christ grew. Now, the first time I noticed this unusual power by President Eyring was way back in 2011 in the First Presidency Christmas devotional. In that devotional, the church had just been in the process of completing production on their New Testament videos. And as part of the devotional, they played a clip from the first New Testament video, which of course deals with the birth of Jesus Christ. The star is shown, the wise men come, they worship Jesus, the shepherds are there, they see the angels, you know the story. So they played it up here on this video. But it was after the video was played and President Eyring continued his remarks to the audience that I first noticed this incredible power he has to read what is in people's minds and hearts. Play the tape. Now as we have remembered the birth and early life of the Savior tonight, there are many lessons to learn. Most of those le lessons came as you watched and listened, not so much from pictures and words as from the Spirit. You recognized and felt truth. You felt the love of the Savior and for the Savior. And you surely felt an increased desire 
to love as He loved. You felt your faith grow in prophets and in the servants of God, both the angels He sends to bear us up and those He calls to His service to guide us. So that was the first time that I noticed that President Eyring is a mind reader. The force is strong in this one. I don't know if he will continue to display this power in this general conference in October of 2019, but keep your eyes peeled because he does do it from time to time. And every time he does it, I am amazed. I also understand that after conference is over, President Ivory will be available to perform at children's birthday parties and bar mitzvahs. The next general conference McNugget comes from Elder Matthias Held of the 70. That's Matthias Held, H-E-L-D, in his talk, Seeking Knowledge by the Spirit. Elder Held talks about his conversion to the church and also the conversion of his wife in their younger years. Now, as a little bit of background for what he is going to say here, which actually did surprise me when he said it, it has long been a selling point in the LDS church that there is no paid clergy in the LDS church. And certainly that is true when it comes to the lower level leaders of the church, such as bishops and state presidents. They indeed do serve without pay. But when you start getting above those local leaders to more general authorities in the church, they are paid. They receive a handsome payment every year. And in fact, in the last couple of years, Mormon Leaks released a pay stub for one of the general authorities who I believe, if memory serves, was Elder Eyring showing that general authorities have a base pay of $120,000 a year. Now that can come as quite a surprise to believing members of the church to find out that general authorities make six-figure incomes base pay when they have been led to believe that the leaders in the church do not get paid and in fact we have an unpaid clergy. I remember back when I was an LDS apologist in the 1980s and I used this as a selling point in the LDS church. There was even a pamphlet and an audio tape that was put out by a guy named Floyd Wesson or Weston, I think his name was, and it was called 17 Points of the True Church. And one of those 17 points was that there is no paid clergy in the Lord's True Church, and indeed there is no paid clergy in the LDS Church. So when members of the church have been taught that there is no paid clergy in the church, and then they find out that the general authorities are paid, and in fact paid handsomely for their services, it can come as somewhat of a shock. And in light of the fact that it has now become general knowledge, at least among some circles of Mormons, that the general authorities are paid, I would have thought that the church in good conscience would back off of this claim that there is no paid clergy in the LDS church. That is why I was so surprised by what Elder Matthias Held said in his general conference talk, because once again, he is going to repeat this canard. He talks about how he and his wife, when investigating the church, met with the missionaries, and how they came to understand that they could know whether the LDS church was the true church by looking at their fruits. So Elder Matthias Held then gives a list of the fruits of the LDS church by which he knew that they were true, and guess what is number two on the list? Play the tape. But how could we know if what the missionaries were telling us about the Book of Mormon, about Joseph Smith, and about the plan of salvation was actually all true? Well, we had understood from the words of the Lord that we could know them by their fruits. So, in a very systematic manner, we started examining the Church by looking for those fruits with the eyes of our very rational minds. What did we see? 
Well, we saw friendly and happy people and wonderful families who understood that we are meant to feel joy in this life and not just suffering and misery. Okay, drum roll please, because here comes point number two. Are you ready? Play the tape. A church that does not have a paid clergy, but one in which members themselves accept assignments and responsibilities. Stop the tape. So number two on the list of signs that the LDS church is true is that the church does not have a paid clergy. This false claim has not been retired by the LDS church, but continues to be put forward by the LDS church in General Conference April 2019 as one of the signs that it is the true church. Now, some people think that the fact that the top leaders of the church, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, making six figures base salary a year, is not really consistent with their high and holy calling, and perhaps they should not be drawing down that kind of money from the tithing paid by the members of the church, including the poorest members of the church especially when these gentlemen have usually retired into church service from a successful business or law practice and can probably support themselves without any additional funds coming to them by way of salary, or as President Hinckley called it, a modest stipend. Other people look at this differently and say, well, these were very successful men in business and therefore they are actually taking a huge cut in pay going down to $120,000 a year base salary. So therefore, it's okay for them to have this salary paid to them. They see no problem with it. Whichever side of that argument you fall on, the problem is that the church continues to promote the false idea that they are not paid, that the general authorities of the church are not paid. And here we have Elder Matthias Held of the Quorum of the Seventy, repeating that false teaching. And I suppose the only thing that makes it more surprising to me is that this is not just a member of the church like I was back in the 1980s, blindly repeating what I was told in ignorance of the real facts. This is Elder Matthias Held, who himself is a member of the 70, and therefore who himself is drawing down a six-figure salary from the church. He is being paid. He knows the clergy gets paid at the top levels of the LDS church, and he is one of the clergy who gets paid by the LDS church. And yet, he is still saying to the members of the church that the LDS church has no paid clergy. That's what I find unusual about this particular talk. It seems that the LDS church is bound and determined to continue teaching things that are false and things that they know are false because it sounds good, and so who cares what the facts really are? The next General Conference McNugget comes from Elder David P. Homer in his talk, Hearing His Voice. Another common theme that is popping up more and more in every General Conference, it's usually mentioned at least once, if not more in every General Conference, is the idea that we need to be really, really careful about where we're getting our information. The idea is to warn us about getting our information from sources other than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its leaders. The reason this is becoming more and more commonly heard in General Conference is because more and more people are finding out the truth about the church through sources other than the correlated church curriculum. Let's listen to how Elder Homer gives his version of this warning. Play the tape. We live in a world with many voices seeking our attention. With all the breaking news, tweets, blogs, podcasts, and compelling advice from Alexa, Siri, and others, we can find it difficult to know which voices to trust. 
Sometimes we crowdsource guidance in our lives, thinking the majority will provide the best source of truth. Other times we halt between two opinions, choosing to be neither cold nor hot. Still other times we follow what is convenient, focus on a single voice or issue to guide us, or rely exclusively upon our own ability to think. While each of these approaches can be helpful, experience teaches that they are not always reliable. What is popular is not always what is best. Halting between two opinions brings no direction. Convenience rarely leads to things that matter. Fixation on a single voice or issue can impair our ability to see, and relying solely upon our own thinking can lead us into a hyper-intellectual stupor of thought. If we are not careful, the wrong voices can draw us away from the gospel center to places where faith is difficult to sustain, and we find little more than emptiness, bitterness, and dissatisfaction. So you can see the point that Elder Homer is driving at, is to warn us about getting our information from sources other than church leaders and to focus on what they have to say. And I'm sure that Elder Homer would agree with the principle that we should follow the prophet, that we should focus on what President Russell M. Nelson has to say. And yet twice in the sound clip I just played for you from his talk, he warns against listening exclusively to one voice. The first time, he says, still other times we follow what is convenient, focus on a single voice or issue to guide us. And the second time, he says, fixation on a single voice or issue can impair our ability to see. Now, I think that that is true as a general principle, and I would extend it to listening to a single voice, even if that single voice happens to be the guy who's the president of the LDS church. I'm sure Elder Homer would not apply this general principle to that specific situation. In fact, that is the one specific situation to which this general principle would not apply in Elder Homer's opinion, I presume. But nevertheless, I think we get the gist of the warning that Elder Homer is giving us, which is that we should not listen or trust any voices other than the voice of church leaders, any other sources, any other voices are unreliable. Those other voices are the wrong voices that he refers to when he says, if we are not careful, the wrong voices can draw us away from the gospel center to places where faith is difficult to sustain and we find little more than emptiness, bitterness, and dissatisfaction. Well, that's the poisoning the water technique. If you get drawn away from the gospel, there is no happiness there. There is no good life there. There is no contentment there. Instead, there is only emptiness, bitterness, and dissatisfaction. Somebody's poisoned the waterhole. Now, the next General Conference McNugget comes from the same talk by Elder Homer. And once again, it deals with a story of somebody who dies. It is a member of the church. It is a person who has illness, who has ailments, who has difficulties with mind and body, who receives priesthood blessings, and yet never gets healed. And I should modify that because it appears that this person who is Elder Homer's brother, this is another story about a brother who gets priesthood blessings and yet is not healed. He doesn't die from his ailments. Apparently, he gets killed in an automobile accident. Let's listen to Elder Homer tell this faith-promoting story in his own words. Nearly a year ago, we lost my older brother in a tragic automobile accident. John's early years were full of promise and accomplishment. But as he grew older, a broken body and uncooperative mind made life very difficult. While the healing he hoped for didn't come in this life, John nonetheless held to his faith, 
determined to endure as best he could to the end. So what we know from this story is that this is Elder Homer's older brother. He is presumably a member of the LDS Church. He presumably got priesthood blessings when his body became broken in some way. Elder Homer doesn't say how. He just says, as he grew older, a broken body and uncooperative mind made life very difficult. But his body was broken in some way. His mind became uncooperative in some way. And I think we can presume with fairness that he received numerous priesthood blessings. But apparently, none of those blessings helped. Because Elder Homer tells us, while the healing he hoped for didn't come in this life, John nonetheless held to his faith, determined to endure as best he could to the end. So once again, we have a story of priesthood blessings and hope and prayer and faith that ends up doing absolutely nothing when it comes to healing a faithful member of a broken body and an uncooperative mind. Priesthood blessings will not only not heal you from physical problems, they will also not help you with mental problems. That's the lesson from this story. And once again, we are seeing that in the April 2019 General Conference, we are once again racking up story after story of people who receive priesthood blessings and yet who are not healed. Elder Homer's brother John was not healed of whatever it was that ailed him, Sister Patricia Parkinson, who I mentioned in the last episode, dealing with the talk from this general conference, was never healed of her blindness. And in fact, Elder Hales tells us with certainty that she will not be healed of her blindness in this life. I am still waiting expectantly for one story in general conference where somebody receives a priesthood blessing and is actually healed. Maybe the October 2019 general conference will be that watershed moment. The next McNugget comes from Elder D. Todd Christofferson in his talk, Preparing for the Lord's Return. This is something that could be its own podcast, but I'm just going to touch on it briefly here. Because as you know, one of the themes of President Nelson's administration is the gathering of Israel. Now, when he talks about the gathering of Israel, what he's talking about is missionary work. We're sending out missionaries to convert people, and when people are converted and join the church, that is what he defines as the gathering of Israel. Elder D. Todd Christofferson picks up on this theme in the Sunday morning session. An underlying effort in building Zion is the gathering of the Lord's long-dispersed covenant people. We believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the Ten Tribes. All who will repent, believe on Christ, and be baptized are His covenant people. Stop the tape. So when Elder Christofferson says, we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the Ten Tribes, we know he's quoting from the Articles of Faith, because the Articles of Faith, written by Joseph Smith and published in 1842 as part of the Wentworth Letter, say that we believe in the literal gathering of Israel. And indeed, in Joseph Smith's mind and in his teachings, the gathering of Israel would be quite literal. The Mormons would go to Jackson County in Missouri. They would build the city, New Jerusalem, in preparation for the second coming of the Lord, and that the entire countryside would be awash with war and horrible violence, and people would be killing each other everywhere except for those faithful who lived in the New Jerusalem. That is what Joseph Smith taught, and that is a literal gathering of Israel. After Joseph Smith was killed, the saints moved out to Utah. They established a new kind of Zion there. They called it Zion, even though Zion was supposed to be the term that was reserved for Missouri, specifically Jackson County, but they call it Zion out in Utah. And for about 100 years or so, they sent out missionaries 
to convert people, and then those people left the countries they lived in and came to Utah. That also was a literal gathering. But sometime around the 1940s or 50s, we decided we were not going to have people literally gathering to Zion, i.e. Utah, but instead they would stay where they lived. And then we said, okay, we're still going to call that gathering. We're going to say you're not gathering actually to a central location. You're going to gather to your local stakes which was really kind of a euphemistic way of saying, you're not gathering at all, you're just going to stay put wherever you are. But we still wanted to use that term gathering because it was so central to the LDS message and even mentioned in the Articles of Faith as we have seen. The bottom line here, though, is that we still have in our scriptures the statement quoted by Elder Christofferson that we believe in the literal gathering of Israel when in fact we do not believe in the literal gathering of Israel. We believe in the symbolic gathering of Israel. We believe in the euphemistic gathering of Israel. We believe in anything but the literal gathering of Israel. And yet we still feel compelled to say that we believe in the literal gathering of Israel because that is part of our scriptures. It is part of our doctrine, even though it has nothing to do with the reality of what's going on in the LDS church in the 21st century or for the second half of the 20th century. And before we leave the subject, we should probably observe that Elder D. Todd Christofferson does not quote this article of faith in its entirety because that would give away the game. He says, we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the ten tribes, but he does not go on to say that Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent. No, that would be a bridge too far. So he stopped short of saying that because that would really tip his hand that we really do believe in a literal, literal gathering of Israel and a literal, literal building up of Zion on this, the American continent. Once again, in general conference, we have to listen to not only what the speakers say, but also to what they don't say. For the next McNugget, we go to the talk by President Henry B. Eyring, The Power of Sustaining Faith. Now, as all of you know, President Eyring has got to be the most emotional speaker that has ever existed in the history of General Conference. He cannot get through one single talk in General Conference without at least once getting choked up to the point where he can barely speak. And this is why President Eyring has the affectionate nickname President Cryring. Now, whether his emotion is real or whether it's a manipulative tactic or a combination of both, I will leave that for you to decide. I am not his judge. All I know is that every single talk he gives we have to sit and listen to the emotion in his voice. And that's why my ears perked up when he gave this talk and he made a statement that I think gives an insight into his character, into his psyche, into his belief system, and to use a $5 word, into his epistemology. Play the tape. I have heard priesthood leaders give thanks for the sustaining faith of those they serve. From the emotion in their voices, you know their gratitude is deep and real. Okay, so I want to focus on that last line. From the emotion in their voices, you know their gratitude is deep and real. You see, from President Eyring's point of view, if a person has emotion in their voice, that lets you know that what they're saying is real. It lets you know that what they're saying is true. And I think that if we extrapolate this principle, we can understand why it is that Elder Eyring cannot give a talk without demonstrating emotion in his voice because that is his way of signaling to the audience that what he is saying is true. Now, I have a little theory that I've developed over the years in which I may have to go into it more depth in a future podcast, but it is my feeling that this emotion 
that is used by President Eyring whenever he speaks, and it's also used by many other speakers in the LDS Church, men and women alike, is a phenomenon in the church that is used to indicate and demonstrate that the Spirit is active and present. President Eyring gets choked up because he feels the Spirit. He is telling the truth about whatever it is he's testifying about or whatever story it is he's telling. And it is a signal to the audience, not only that President Eyring is feeling the Spirit, but really they should be feeling the Spirit too. The Spirit's present, President Eyring is feeling it, the audience should feel it as well. And if that is how President Eyring views things, it may help to explain why it is that he thinks that he can tell everybody in the audience what it is that they're feeling at any given time, because if he feels something, he believes that everybody else must feel it as well. If he is feeling the Spirit, then everybody else must be feeling the Spirit too. But to take this one step further, we know that in the early days of the LDS Church, there were many spiritual gifts that were present. There was the gift of tongues that was actually used and present in the LDS Church in its earliest days. There was the gift of prophecy, gift of revelation, gift of translation, gift of healing. All the spiritual gifts that are related in the New Testament were reported in the early days of the LDS Church, and indeed that was a sign that it was the true church. And furthermore, it was a sign that the Spirit was present and active in the LDS Church. But over time, those spiritual gifts have faded away into nothingness. There is no more revelation. There is no more prophecy. There is no more healing. As I think all these stories from General Conference are demonstrating, there are no more miracles in the church. In other words, the presence of the Spirit is no more manifested as being present in the church through the gifts of the Spirit, through the miracles being performed for the prophecies, revelations, etc. And therefore, and therefore, a different mechanism has developed in the LDS Church to signify that the Spirit is present. We no longer have the gifts of the Spirit and therefore we have emotional speaking. It is this emotional speaking which is epitomized by President Eyring that now is the new indication and sign that the Spirit is present in the LDS Church and this emotional speaking has now taken the place of the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. That's my theory anyway. I don't know that I could prove it conclusively, but it does seem to be supported by the evidence. The next McNugget from General Conference comes later in the same talk by President Eyring because President Eyring, if you pay attention closely to what he says, you'll notice that not only does he cry in every talk, he also has certain themes that he likes to revisit with some regularity. And one of those themes is the idea that whenever you get a calling, whether it's from your bishop, whether it's from your state president, whether it's from a general authority, you accept that calling. That calling is coming from God. And it doesn't make any difference if it's an inconvenient calling, if you feel inadequate, if you've got other things you've got to do, if you've got kids you've got to take care of, if it doesn't fit into your schedule. You take that calling because God knows what you need better than you know what you need. And God is inspiring the leader to extend to you that calling. Therefore, you are duty-bound to accept it. President Eyring has talked about this in previous conferences. Now, the other side of that message is that God calls all of the leaders in the church, whether it's the president of the church or the apostles or the general authorities or even presidents of the missionary training center <clears throat> or state presidents or bishops or their counselors all the way down the line. Everybody who receives a calling in the church has received that calling from God and therefore we as members are duty bound to sustain them, to support them, to go along with whatever it is they say, to do whatever it is they say to do, because God has called them, and therefore, whatever they're telling us to do is what God wants us 
to do. In this particular talk from April 2019 General Conference, President Henry Eyring revisits this theme and he really lays it on thick here. Listen to what he has to say. Play the tape. You choose whether to sustain all whom the Lord calls in whatever the Lord has called them. That choice happens in conferences all over the world. It has happened in this one. In such meetings, names of men and women, servants of God, are read, and you are invited to raise your hand to sustain. You can withhold your sustaining voice, vote, or you can pledge your sustaining faith. By raising your hand to sustain, you make a promise. You make a promise with God, whose servants these are, that you will sustain them. Now these are imperfect human beings, as are you. Keeping your promises will take unshakable faith that the Lord called them. Keeping those promises will also bring eternal happiness. Not keeping them will bring sorrow to you and to those you love, and even losses beyond your power to imagine. So here in the context of this talk, he's actually restricting his comments specifically to the general authorities of the church and the ones who are named and sustained by the members of the church in general conference. So this is very very self-serving on his part. In other talks, he has talked about bishops and stake presidents. Here, he is focusing on the general authorities, including himself. He says that when you raise your hand to sustain them, but obviously he's included in the leaders of the church. He is the second counselor in the first presidency, after all. But he says, when you sustain us, you make a promise with God whose servants these are. I'm his servant. All of us up here, including me, all of us sitting up here in the big, high-backed, red velvet, cushy seats are God's servants. And you make a promise with God to sustain us. Now, if you do sustain us, and he says, you know, it'll take unshakable faith to sustain us because we're imperfect in everything. But if you keep those promises, i.e. your promise to sustain us and do whatever it is we tell you to do and believe whatever it is we tell you to believe, you will have eternal happiness. And if you don't keep those promises, in other words, if you don't believe everything we tell you to believe and do everything we tell you to do, well, that's not going to be so good for you. Then that will bring sorrow to you and to those you love. Boy, laying on the guilt a little bit thick there, President Eyring. And even, there's more than that. It's even worse than that. And even losses beyond your power to imagine. So it's unimaginable losses unless you do everything we tell you to do and believe everything we tell you to believe. Yes, sir, I crack a sharp salute to you, President Eyring. Sometimes President Eyring speaks with such emotion and in such a meek and demure voice. He has this kind of very soft, gentle, and even somewhat effeminate presentation. It is easy to lose sight of how black and white and uncompromising and my way or the highway kinds of words and statements and messages that he is actually giving. The final folly we're going to talk about is from President Dallin H. Oaks, first counselor in the first presidency, in his talk, Where Will This Lead? Now, in this talk, he tells a story. It's a story about a squirrel and a dog and a bunch of students hanging around on a beautiful college campus on a lovely afternoon. Play the tape. The setting was a beautiful college campus. A crowd of young students were seated on the grass. The speaker who described this circumstance 
said they were watching a handsome tree squirrel with a large bushy tail playing around the base of a beautiful hardwood tree. Sometimes it was on the ground, sometimes up and down and around the trunk. But why would that familiar sight attract a crowd of students? Stretched out prone on the grass nearby was an Irish setter. He was the object of the student's interest, and the squirrel was the object of his. Each time the squirrel was momentarily out of sight circling the tree, the setter would quietly creep forward a few inches and then resume his apparently indifferent posture. This was what held the student's interest. Silent and immobile, their eyes were riveted on the event whose outcome was increasingly obvious. Finally, the setter was close enough to bound at the squirrel and catch it in his mouth. A gasp of horror arose, and the crowd of students surged forward and wrested the little animal away from the dog. But it was too late. The squirrel was dead. <laughs> Anyone in that crowd could have warned the squirrel at any time by waving arms or crying out, but none did. They just watched while the inevitable outcome got closer and closer. No one asked, where will this lead? When the predictable occurred, all rushed to prevent the outcome, but it was too late. Tearful regret was all they could offer. Okay, the first thing I want to say about this story is that this is not the first time Elder Oaks has told this story. He has told it before in General Conference. He seems to like this story. This story has a lot of meaning for him and meaning he wants to convey to his audience. And I think that the meaning behind this parable, it's a true story apparently, but it's a parable of sorts, is that this poor squirrel who's playing around on the tree, not noticing the dog getting closer, represents the unwitting, the naive, the unwary member of the church. And the dog that is slowly creeping up on him represents some kind of enemy to this poor, unwary member of the church. Now, all the students are sitting around. They're not saying anything. They're just watching. And finally, the dog, the enemy to the member of the church, ends up grabbing it in its jaws and killing it. Well, Elder Oaks wants to distinguish himself and the leaders of the church from these poor idiot students sitting around and doing nothing except watching what's going on. Even though they know there's danger, they're not saying anything to warn the squirrel and therefore the squirrel gets killed. Elder Oaks, however, wants to use this story, I think, as a shield or an explanation or a device of sorts to explain why it is that he is justified in making the many controversial pronouncements he makes specifically against homosexuals, gays, lesbians, transgender people, which frequently get a lot of blowback. And he wants to say, hey, look, it's this dog. It's this Irish setter. The Irish setter represents the enemy to the unwary member of the church. Whether that's the homosexual lobby, the gay agenda, something of that sort, whatever it is, is the enemy. And Elder Oaks is not going to be like the rest of the students who just sit around looking until disaster befalls the poor little squirrel. Instead, he is going to raise the warning voice so that squirrel gets up the tree and the Irish setter does not kill it. In his talk, Elder Oaks really doesn't explain what he means by this parable. 
at least not in detail, which suggests to me that he thinks it's probably better just to tell the parable and not give it his particular interpretation. Which further leads me to think that my interpretation of what he has in mind is probably close to the truth. The next thing I want to note about this story is what happens in the audience when Elder Oaks talks about the demise of this poor squirrel. He says, A gasp of horror arose and the crowd of students surged forward and wrested the little animal away from the dog, but it was too late. The squirrel was dead. Now, that's sad. That's tragic. That's unfortunate. It's not the end of the world. Well, I mean, it was for the squirrel, but it's not something that I find humorous or funny. It's not something I would laugh at, which is why I was surprised to hear that when Elder Oaks tells the story and says the squirrel was dead, there is a huge roar of laughter from the audience. Play the tape again. A gasp of horror arose, and the crowd of students surged forward and wrested the little animal away from the dog. But it was too late. The squirrel was dead. (laughs) What is all the laughing about? That's just bizarre. Elder Oak says the squirrel was dead and the audience erupts into laughter. Now, I know that this is general priesthood session, right? And there's only a bunch of men out there and young men in the audience listening to this story from Elder Oaks. But, you know, I don't think that accounts for why it is that when Elder Oaks says the squirrel was dead, the audience erupts into laughter. I do not have the answer to this mystery. Maybe some of my listeners can weigh in on this subject and tell me why it is that you think that the audience laughs at something that is so obviously not a punchline. Now, I have a couple of thoughts on this issue. The first thought is that Elder Oaks is telling a story, and he gets to the line, which is obviously the clinch line of the story. The audience may be expecting this to be funny, and when he gets to the punchline, They know they're supposed to laugh, or they think they're supposed to laugh, right? Because it's the punchline, and therefore they all laugh. It's a sign of support to the general authority. It's a way of schmoozing up to him because now he is so funny because he's an apostle, and anything he says is going to be funny if he thinks it's supposed to be funny. You know, I once knew an attorney about 20 years ago who became a judge, a local judge, and I remember he told me after he was elected, it's great being a judge because now every joke I tell is super funny and everybody laughs at it. So of course what he's saying is, it doesn't make any difference whether his joke is funny or not, people will laugh because he's the judge and they laugh in deference to the fact he's the judge, not in deference to the humor or non-humor of his joke. They will laugh at his jokes even if the jokes aren't funny. So we may be seeing some of that here. Here we've got President Oaks telling a joke. It's not funny, but everybody laughs anyway because they think they're supposed to. And it ends up with this strange situation where the audience laughs at a squirrel dying. This kind of inappropriate laughter occurs from time to time in general conference. A while back, I did an episode in which I played a story told by President Iring about his visiting an elderly friend who was sick with cancer. Once again, he's going to get a priesthood blessing. Once again, he's going to die, right? We all know what's going to happen. But President Iring comes over to his house and he sees this older man who is lying on his bed. He's bedridden, basically. And he is dressed in his tie, in his shirt, in his suit. He's got his shoes on. He's laying on his bed. He's waiting for President Iring to come over and give him a blessing. President Iring sees him on the bed and he says, why are you completely dressed up and lying on your bed? And the man says to him, because once you bless me, I'm going to arise from my bed and walk. Now that is a demonstration of great faith on the part of this man. But the audience laughs 
It's inappropriate laughter, and yet they understand the joke. The joke is there is no healing power from President Eyring. There is no priesthood power that's going to heal this man and allow him to get up and walk like happened in the New Testament, apparently. But he's going to die anyway, and in fact, he did receive the priesthood blessing from Elder Eyring, and he died right on schedule. As I've said before, about the scariest thing you could possibly see if you are suffering from a serious illness is President Eyring standing in your doorway and getting the consecrated oil vial out of his pocket. <laughs> Okay, now I'm going to close out this episode by telling you a story from my mission in Japan because this story that Elder Oaks tells about the Irish setter and the squirrel reminds me of something that happened to me in Japan. It was the spring of 1981. I have told this story to basically nobody in my entire life and I will let you guess as to why it is that I have kept it under wraps but I'm going to reveal it here now for the first time and even though I probably will not Repeat, not get choked up. As I tell it, you can know anyway that it's completely true. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Somebody stop me. Okay, so it's a beautiful spring day in the city of Sakai. My companion and I are out street contacting. And we're walking along the road. And we come around the corner of a building. This is in an urban area. And there are a lot of buildings around. There's a lot of apartments around. And we walk around this corner and we come upon one of the strangest things that I have ever seen. It is like a tableau. It's like everything has stopped. Time has stood still. And there's a number of people, maybe 20, 30 people, who are outside, but they are all standing stock still. Whatever it was they were doing, wherever it was they were going, they have frozen in time and they have all turned and they are all staring at the very same thing. And what they're staring at is the front doors of a large apartment complex. So I follow their line of sight and I'm looking at the front doors of this apartment complex. And here's what's going on there. There are two doors to this front lobby. They are both glass doors. So you can see through the glass doors to what's on the other side of the doors. Just outside these front doors are two dogs. There's one that's a smaller dog and it's on a leash. And then there is a huge, black, massive dog that is not on a leash. This is the biggest dog I have ever seen in Japan. It was a very big dog. In Japan, you almost never see dogs running loose. They are either on a leash or they are kept pinned up. But this dog was not in a cage and it was not pinned up and it was not on a leash and it was a bruiser. And this huge dog had its jaws closed tight on the snout of this smaller dog. And this smaller dog was in obvious pain and distress. It was whimpering, but it could not move because its nose, its snout, was clamped tight in the teeth of the bigger dog. And that bigger dog was obviously not going to let go. Even more gruesome was the fact that this smaller dog was on a leash. And holding the leash was a terrified Japanese girl. She was probably 14 or 15 years old. And her face was terror-stricken. Now let me see if I can describe to you exactly what was going on. It was very easy to see. It's a little bit more difficult to describe in words. I have mentioned that there were the doorways to the lobby of the apartment building and that those were of glass. I've mentioned that the two dogs were just outside this doorway. The doors were closed, but the littler dog, the one with its snout in the jaws of the bigger dog, was on a leash. 
And what it seemed that must have happened was that this 14 or 15 year old Japanese girl was out walking her dog. She had gotten close to the front doors of the apartment building in which she probably lived. Her little dog got attacked by this big dog and the girl had managed to get through the door into the lobby and was now standing on the other side of the glass pane of the lobby door. So the two dogs are just outside the door. The littler dog, her dog, is on a leash. She's holding the end of the leash, but the little dog is outside the lobby door and she is inside the lobby door holding the leash. And the door has closed on the middle part of the leash. So her dog is pinned there. Her dog cannot move. Not only is it being held by the big dog with its jaws on its snout, but it can't move because it's being held by the leash. On the other hand, this girl cannot open the door to even try and rescue her dog. I don't know if she would have done that because that huge dog was out there just snarling. And she can't even open the door without opening it into her little dog. So she is in a position where she is helpless to aid her little dog in getting it away from the big dog. And all she can do is stand there on the other side of the glass pane, holding the end of her dog's leash in her hand and looking horrified at what is happening just a couple of feet away from her on the other side of the glass door. What is happening to her little dog as it's being mauled by this big dog. So that is the tableau that I see as my companion and I come around the corner into this park-like area in front of this apartment building. And that is why everybody who is outside has stopped what they're doing and they have turned and they are staring at what's going on. And that's why this reminds me of that story told by Elder Oaks about all these college students just sitting around and watching this Irish setter slowly sneaking up on a squirrel. Well, this is worse than an Irish setter slowly sneaking up on a squirrel. This is everybody standing around and watching this poor dog get mauled by this huge beast of an animal. And the Japanese girl, who obviously owns the little dog that's getting mauled, is on the other side of the glass and having to watch it in horror. That's why this is something that everybody has stopped and they're watching. Okay, now having described that, here's what happens. I am looking around at everybody and I cannot believe that everybody is just standing there and not doing anything. On the other hand, I can understand why they're not doing anything because what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to go up there and take on this huge bruiser of a dog single-handedly? It's obvious that he has no compunction about biting things that cross him. And I remember that there was one person who did something and what they did was they took a pan, they had a pan of water and they slowly crept up from the side on these two dogs and they dumped the water on top of the big dog's head and he let go his grip on the little dog and shook his head in surprise and shook off the water. But the little girl on the other side of the door did not take that opportunity to grab her dog and take it inside. And it would have been hard for her to do that from that angle, I've got to tell you. But once the big dog shook the water off, it lasted two or three seconds. He clamped down once again on the snout of that little dog. And he clamped down hard. So it looked like the crowd was pretty much out of ideas. And I was getting mad. I was getting mad at that dog mauling the little dog. I was mad about that little Japanese girl having to watch it. I was mad at all these people standing around watching and not doing anything. And then guess what I realized? I was one of those people standing around not doing anything. And so I decided it was time to cowboy up. I was really, really worried that if I went in there and interfered between these two dogs, that big dog was going to turn his attention from the little dog and onto Radio Free Mormon. Chopper sick balls. <laughs> but my anger overrode my fear 
and I told my companion, you stay here. I walked with long strides across the lawn and up to the front door and right where that big dog had that little dog in its jaws. Now I want to tell you that by this time I did not have the plastic shoes that I originally went to Japan with. Instead, in the meantime, I had a friend from the States send me a pair of decent shoes. These were big shoes. These were walking shoes. These were technically red wing shoes that were worn by postal workers in the United States. They were big, they were heavy, and I was hoping they would do the trick. I had a plan in mind and I was hoping my plan would work. I walked right up to the rear end of that big dog and I hauled off and I kicked it as hard as I could in the haunch of its right rear leg with my postal shoes. And I wasn't gonna just kick once and see what happened. I was gonna kick and kick and kick and I was gonna keep on kicking until that big dog let go of the little dog. Of course, my concern is what would happen when that big dog let go of that little dog and saw who was kicking it? But I thought, if I kick as hard as I can, maybe that big dog will think I'm an even bigger dog and split the scene. So I kicked him once, as hard as I could, without result. I kicked again, as hard as I could. And the big dog let go of the little dog and started to look around and saying, what the hell's going on here? I'm supposed to be in charge of this situation. So I hauled off for a third kick, and on the third kick, I connected with nothing but air, because that dog had taken off and was now a dot on the horizon. So, in the aftermath, the little dog, who had a very bloody snout, gave me a somewhat grateful look. The little Japanese girl on the other side of the glass door opened the glass door and hauled her dog inside, and everybody else who had been watching turned and apparently went their way and went on with whatever it was they were doing. So, that is my story from my mission in Japan, the story that I think of when Elder Oaks tells a story about the Irish setter and the dead squirrel. Well, that's about all the time we have tonight. I hope you've enjoyed this story from my mission, and I hope you've enjoyed the various tasty McNuggets that we've talked about from General Conference, April 2019. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Top lover, all the men just call him sir.